This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review <laughs> spells help me. <laughs> it seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini platforms. I'm Scott Janovitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a new podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of your favorite movies, music, television, toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Farrah Dowdy. And we usually save our spookier subjects for the fall and Halloween, of course, but summer is also a great time to curl up with a good mystery. And today's subject, Edgar Allan Poe, definitely offers that. A famous 19th century writer, poet, critic, and editor known for dabbling in moody and macabre topics, Poe almost really needs no introduction, but of course we're going to give you one anyway. We can't just skip skip this whole part. No, that's what we do. (laughs) So chances are you've at least heard of Poe, and if you've taken any sort of post-grade school level literature class, you've probably read his work too, or at least the eerie The Raven, which is his most famous piece. Or even grade school. I think I memorized The Raven sometime in elementary school. Well, you're very advanced, Sarah. Oh, (laughs) I don't know about that. I I did it dramatically. That's why I chose it. But um, Poe is also often credited with creating the first modern detective story with his murders of the Rue Morgue. And ironically, some of the aspects of his own life, particularly the end of his life, are really worthy of the type of fiction he wrote. Yeah, basically, in the fall of 1849, Poe disappeared for a few days. And when he reappeared, he was in really bad shape. He was delirious, and he appeared to a lot of people to be severely intoxicated. And he died just a few days later. Because of that, initially, many people assumed alcoholism is what ultimately killed Poe. But it really didn't take long for others to start stepping up with alternate theories, some of which seemed just as, if not more, plausible than the alcoholism one. And these theories are still debated today. And I mean, I should go back and say, I mean, that, you know, I mentioned that it didn't take long for people to come up with theories. It it took a few years. I mean, it really wasn't investigated at the time. Alcoholism was really the prevailing thought. 
So today, though, we're going to take a look, a closer look at Poe's mysterious disappearance and his death and discuss some of those theories about what ultimately led to his demise. But before we can really talk about Poe's death, you know, we said we had to do this introduction. We've got to do more than that, really. We we really need to tell you at least a little bit about his life, because it's pretty interesting, too. It is. He was born Edgar Poe, January 19th, 1809, in Boston, Massachusetts, to two struggling actor parents, David and Elizabeth Arnold Poe. Edgar was actually the second of their children. His older brother, William Henry Leonard, ended up living with their grandparents because of their parents' constant financial struggles. And Poe also had a sister, Rosalie, who was a year younger than him. And Poe had to face hardship and a lot of sadness really early on. His father abandoned the family around the time of or even before his sister's birth, at which point Poe, his sister, and his mom all moved to Virginia. And his mom got ill and died the year after his sister was born. So that happened when Poe was only about two years old. So Poe and Rosalie, now basically orphans, were taken in by family friends in Richmond. And Poe ended up living with the merchant John Allen and his wife Frances, who didn't have any kids, while Rosalie went on to live with a neighboring family called the Mackenzies. And the Allens basically treated Poe as their own child. They never legally adopted him, but they educated him and and treated him like their son. He started his education in Richmond, and then at age six, he was taken abroad for a bit and continued studying in England and Scotland for about five years before he returned to Virginia with the Allens, where he continued his schooling. And lest you start thinking of a little adolescent, strange Poe, he seemed like a pretty normal kid. He made friends, was doing all right in school and everything. However, by his mid-teens or so, Poe discovered that his foster father wasn't exactly being faithful to his foster mother, and this really upset Poe, and it kicked off a very strained relationship between Poe and John Allen, and they argued a lot about that topic. Around this time, Poe also fell in love with a local girl named Sarah Elmira Royster, and she was in love with him too, but in 1826, Poe went off to the University of Virginia. So Poe was only at the University of Virginia for about 11 months, though. And according to a biography of Edgar Allan Poe by Veronica Loveday, Allen wouldn't give Poe the money he needed to buy school basics like books. So Poe started gambling, ended up racking up a lot of debt, and he also started drinking while he was there. And unfortunately for him, he had a very low tolerance for alcohol. So Allen ultimately refused to let Poe continue spending time at the university. In the meantime, realizing that Poe's future was really uncertain because of this contentious relationship with his foster father, Royster's parents decided to put a stop to her relationship with Poe. They made sure, for example, that she never received Poe's letters from school. And by the time Poe returned to Richmond, his beloved Sarah was engaged to someone else. So Poe was understandably devastated by this turn of events, and he decided to go to Boston in the spring of 1827, where he tried tried his hand at making a living as a writer. And he did publish some stuff. He published his first volume of poetry, Tamerlane and other poems. And this was fairly well received, but he could only print a few copies. And at the end of the day, he was still destitute. So he's published, but it didn't bring in the money he was hoping. So to solve his money issues, he joined the army and he really actually thrived in the military doing a desk job for a couple of years. He was even promoted from private to the rank of sergeant major. And Poe decided that he wanted to attend West Point. And 
And after a while, Alan agreed to help him fund this. He saw, okay, my my foster son is actually doing well Shaping in the army. Up. Yes, maybe I should support this. So Poe was released from the army, and he applied to the military academy. And while he was waiting to be accepted to West Point, he spent a little time in Baltimore getting to know his Poe family again, his grandmother, his brother, and his father's sister, who is his aunt Mariah Clem. Mariah Clem also had a very young daughter, Virginia. And Poe also published another collection of poems during this time. Soon he was accepted to West Point, though, in 1830, so he had to put down the pen for a little while. But he didn't stay at West Point long either. Again, according to Loveday's article, he learned that John Allen had had a pair of twins as a result of one of his affairs. And even though his foster mother was dead by this time, Poe pretty much realized there was no future between him and his foster father. And in fact, just as an aside, Allen did ultimately leave everything, the whole inheritance to these twins that he had. That might have been a a good intuition he had there. So set on pursuing a writing career, you know, deciding that this was going to have to be how he'd make his his future and his career, Poe took measures to get himself expelled from West Point. He wasn't just going to drop out. Yeah, and you couldn't just walk away. No, no. So according to Encyclopedia Britannica, he just didn't show up at any classes or any drills for a week. And he even tried to spread a rumor that he was the grandson of Benedict Arnold, probably not something that's going to make you too popular at your military school. And in the end, he did finally get his wish and he was dismissed. So he was freed up to pursue this writing career that he was hoping to. So Poe moved to New York in February of 1831, and he published a third collection called Poems. From there, he moved around between New York City, Baltimore, Richmond, and Philadelphia for the next few years in pursuit of his writing career. And for our purposes here, we're just going to cover some of the highlights of of what he did during that time. By March of 1831, Poe returned to Baltimore to live with his Aunt Mariah Clem and his little cousin Virginia. And while there, he he still struggled to earn a living, but he started to write stories as well, prose. Yeah, and things did start to look up a little bit. In 1833, when his story Manuscript Found in a Bottle won a $50 prize from a Baltimore Weekly News newspaper. And that finally started to get him noticed. And he also started writing reviews and stories for the Southern Literary Messenger. And by 1835, he even took a position as an editor there and made even more of a name for himself. In the meantime, his brother and his foster father died. So a little more tragedy in his life. And his foster father, as we mentioned, left him nothing. So he realized that he was really going to have to make a living on his own. And on September 22nd, 1835, another life milestone, he married his first cousin, Virginia Clem. And as you'll remember, we mentioned she was very young. Well, at the time of their marriage, she was only 13. And uh, the marriage certificate listed her as 21, but that was incorrect. According to Loveday's article, Poe did wait for more than two years before consummating their marriage. So, so yeah, Poe would have been in his in his late 20s by then. It's always one of those facts that sticks with you about about Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, big age difference. Um, but moving on to his career again, it's unclear whether it was voluntary or not. But Poe left his job at the Southern Literary Messenger, and according to Encyclopedia. Britannica, he was fired probably because of his drinking. Um, Drinking really seemed to become sort of a means of escape for him. But as we mentioned, he also had a very low tolerance for alcohol his entire life. So it didn't really take that much to make him appear very intoxicated. And even though he wasn't very intoxicated 
that often, again, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, he was unfortunately usually somewhere in public when he was drunk. So he got this reputation as being a public drunk. But after this, after leaving the Southern Southern Literary Messenger or being fired, he and Virginia moved to New York City, where he reviewed articles for the New York Review while still pursuing his own projects, too. By 1839, the couple had moved to Philadelphia, where he published Tales of the Grotesque and the Arabesque, a short story collection. He also started working as an editor for Burton's Gentleman's Magazine. And by the fall of 1841, he started working for kind of a successor to that magazine, Graham's Ladies and Gentlemen's Magazine. And this afforded him steady income, finally. And it's where he published The Murders in the Rue Morgue. So at this point, Poe's notoriety is really starting to grow. But like Like most of his jobs, the Graham's gig was short-lived. He quit by the middle of 1842 to work as a freelance writer and to also try to start his own publication, which was something that he would try to do here and there throughout the rest of his life. But he was never really successful with that part of it, with starting his own publication. Couldn't follow the Dickens model. Nope. In 1844, he returned to New York where he continued writing, and it was while there in 1845 that his poem, The Raven, was published, and it was instantly successful, making Poe very famous. But despite his successes in the literary world that were happening around this time, this was still a very rough period for Poe. For one thing, Virginia became very ill. She'd contracted tuberculosis at some point in the early 1840s, and her health never really got better after that. And for his part, Poe wasn't doing so great either. His drinking continued to get worse, and this exacerbated his own health issues. And according to Loveday's article, he almost died in 1844 from heart failure. So not not so great for Mr. and Mrs. Poe at this point. With the fame the Raven brought him, Poe started doing lecture tours in the northeastern United States. And though he still struggled financially, he had quite a lot of social attention paid to him during this time. In 1845, for example, he received the attentions of the poet Francis Sargent Locke Osgood, and they had an affair, which was scandalous because she wrote poems about him, and so everybody knew what was going on between them because it was out there in print. It's kind of like writing about him on her blog or something these days. Yeah, kind of. Actually, that's a pretty good comparison, I think. But according to Encyclopedia Britannica, Poe's wife, for whatever reason, did not object to this relationship with Osgood. So people were scandalized by it, but she was kind of okay with it. And her health continued to deteriorate, and she finally died in January of 1847 at the age of 24. So after his wife's death, Poe did publish a few things, including a lecture called Eureka, some poems, including The Bells and Annabelle Lee. He also tried to start a magazine again, but once again, that didn't work. He did not succeed at running a magazine. But his final years are also marked by some serious relationships that he had with a couple of women. First, there was the Providence, Rhode Island-based poet named Sarah Helen Whitman. They actually became engaged in 1848, but she only agreed to marry him on the condition that he quit drinking. Um, According to Loveday's article, Poe just couldn't control his feelings for her, and he tried to commit suicide by taking laudanum in November of 1848. After that, he relapsed, he started drinking again, and so uh, Whitman broke off the engagement. 
1849, continuing his lectures, he returned to Richmond for a while. And while he was there, he ran into his old flame from his teenage years, Elmira Royster, who just happened to be a widow by this point by the name of Mrs. A.B. Shelton. And they rekindled their old romance. Well, Elmira was a teetotaler, too, and much like Sarah Whitman, she would not have approved of Poe drinking. Luckily, though, Poe decided to completely give up alcohol and may have been successful at this for several months. According to an article by Robert Hopkins in the Southern Quarterly, Poe even took a public oath on August 27, 1849, at a Sons of Temperance meeting, in which he swore that he'd never touch another drop of liquor, and he signed a document to that effect as well. So I guess old Elmira was convinced by this display, and so they became engaged and set their wedding date for October 17th. This is where things start to get a little weird in the story, though. Before the marriage was supposed to take place, Poe set off on a business trip to Philadelphia and New York. And while he was in New York, it's possible he was going to pick up his Aunt Mariah Clem, too, and bring her down to Richmond for the wedding. Well, I guess his his former mother-in-law as well. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first Understand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. Um, he probably set off for this trip from Richmond around September 27th, 1849. And what happened after that is what's really uncertain. Yeah, some say that he went straight to Baltimore and called on a friend, Dr. Nathan C. Brooks, but Brooks wasn't at home. And if Baltimore is the only stop that Poe made, then that still leaves several days unaccounted for because there doesn't seem to be any information on what he was up to in town after that for the following days after that. However, according to the Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore, a Philadelphia friend of Poe's, Thomas H. Lane, who had worked for the Broadway Journal, later said that he believed Poe had come to Philadelphia and seen mutual friends of theirs while he was in town. 
Lane said that Poe also fell ill while he was in Philadelphia, but instead of he still insisted on getting on a train to New York after his brief visit. He had business to do there. He was going to see Aunt Mariah, so he was going to head out. So Lane's theory is that Poe must have gotten on the wrong train and ended up back in Baltimore. But even if this Philadelphia visit did happen, and it's not clear whether it did or not, the exact dates aren't known. So there's a lot that's still very sketchy about this possibility in the story. A letter from Poe to Aunt Mariah Clem also confirms that he at least had intentions of heading to Philadelphia to meet another poet and edit her poems there. And he'd also told Aunt Mariah to write him directly in Philadelphia, as if he'd be there to receive it. But he did tell her to address her correspondence, instead of just addressing it to Edgar Allan Poe, address it to E.S.T. Gray Esquire. So kind of a shady aspect to the story. Yeah, for sure. So what is known, though, what is known for sure, is that on October 3rd, 1849, Poe was found in a very, very bad way, lying outside of Ryan's Fourth Ward Poles, Baltimore, which was basically a saloon, but voting also would take place there, too, and an election was going on in the city at the same time. It's hard to imagine bars doubling as as polling stations today, but a man named J.W. Walker found Poe outside of this bar slash polling station, nearly unconscious and delirious, and strangely wearing somebody else's cheap, dirty, ill-fitting clothes. And according to Hopkins' article, Walker immediately sent a note to a Dr. J.E. Snodgrass, who was an acquaintance of Poe's, at Poe's own request. And this is what the note said. Dear Sir, there is a gentleman, rather worse for wear, at Ryan's Fourth Ward Poles, who goes under the name of Edgar A. Poe, and who appears in great distress, and he says he is acquainted with you, and I assure you, he is in need of immediate assistance. Snodgrass and Henry Herring at that point, and Henry Herring was someone who had married one of Poe's aunts, showed up and took Poe to Washington College Hospital at about 5 p.m. that day. And while there, he was attended to by a resident named Dr. John Joseph Moran. So Poe was pretty much unconscious until the next day, but even when he was a little more coherent, he wasn't able to exactly tell the doctor how he came to be in his present state. After that, he became delirious on and off for a few days, and according to the Poe Society of Baltimore, at one point cried out the name Reynolds, but no one's been able to figure out who he was referring to by that. It's just a interesting little detail we wanted to throw in. Interesting indeed. But on Sunday, October 7th, four days after he was found outside of the saloon, Poe finally passed away. And that morning, his last words were, God bless my poor soul. He was only 40 years old. So this brings us to our our big question. What happened to Poe before he died and what really caused his death? Of course, most people at the time, as we already indicated, and even many people today have believed that drinking was what ultimately killed him. This theory was actually sort of promoted at the time, even by Poe's acquaintance who helped him out, Dr. Snodgrass. According to Hopkins, though, we should take Snodgrass's perspective with a little grain of salt. He was apparently super religious and kind of used Poe's fate to illustrate what could happen to you if you indulged in the sin of drinking, almost as a cautionary tale of sorts. As Hopkins put it, Snodgrass went to, quote, great lengths to support his temperance cause at Poe's expense. 
And a lot of the other people who spread the alcohol abuse theory were either coming from similar perspective as the Snodgrass or getting their information secondhand. But Hopkins and some other sources say that it's unlikely that alcohol abuse is ultimately what killed Edgar Allan Poe. So Dr. Moran, for instance, who attended to Poe in his final days, actually published a book 30 years after the death called A Defense of Edgar Allan Poe, in which he said, quote, I have stated to you the fact that Edgar Allan Poe did not die under the effect of an intoxicant, nor was the smell of liquor upon his breath or person. Although we have to say, too, a lot of people discount Moran's opinions here because apparently he changed his story quite significantly from what he said right after Poe's death. And Hopkins even points out that Moran changed his opinion only after certain key temperance promoters who were very closely involved in the situation passed away. So there might have been some sort of conspiracy involved there, too. Yeah, it makes you wonder, was was he just telling the truth later in life? Waiting for certain people to, to no longer be there, or whether he just changed his story for something, a new interesting angle. Right. There are, however, some other more straightforward signs that alcohol may not have been the cause of death. For example, while in the hospital, Poe got better before he then again got worse and died, which, according to the University of Maryland Medical Center, isn't consistent with alcohol withdrawal. So I think that's some some medical background. Interesting little science background. So still, though, if drinking too much didn't kill Poe, what might have killed him? You don't usually just wind up dead outside of a saloon. So Some people believe that he was the victim of a type of political sabotage known as cooping. And as we mentioned, there was an election going on at the time, and the saloon did double as a place to go vote. So cooping supposedly involved political gangs kidnapping bystanders and then holding them for a while in a room called a coop and then forcing them, after they'd gotten them kind of liquored up or drugged up, to illegally vote in multiple polling locations. And sometimes these gangs would even even have their victims change clothing so that they wouldn't be recognized when they were voting multiple times in the same area. This whole thing sounds kind of terrifying to me, the idea of cooping. Some people, though, discount this theory for a few different reasons. For one, Poe is a a celebrity of his day, almost. He was pretty well known, and he probably would have been recognized even if he were wearing these different ratty sort of clothes. Also, some say that there is a lack of evidence that the practice of cooping really existed in the first place. So I don't need to be too worried, maybe. Maybe (laughs) not. I'm not sure. I mean, there definitely was a lot of plying with alcohol going on in general. I mean, having polling places and bars, which was often the case, kind of encouraged that. But there were accounts in contemporary publications that where citizens were warned about the very real possibility of cooping in the days right before leading up to the election. So people at the time at least believed that cooping was going on and was a real possibility. So So, go vote with your friends, vote in a group. Yeah, be careful. So go ahead and be scared, Sarah. Could have happened. (laughs) All right. Next time I go vote. But (laughs) also Hopkins points out a cryptic statement that was made by J.H. Morrison after Poe's death. And in a letter to John Ingram, Morrison suggests Poe's cousin Nelson might have known something about the circumstances surrounding Poe's death. And he said, quote, the story of Poe's death has never been told. Nelson Poe has all the facts, but I am afraid may not be willing to tell them. I do not see why Poe came to the city in the midst of an election, and that election was the cause of his death. 
So one interesting point to make here about the involvement of Cousin Nelson is that Nelson was, in fact, elected a judge in that 1849 election. Also, Nelson and Poe did not get along well at all. Some say that Nelson had had his own designs on marrying Virginia Clem, but of course she ended up with Poe. So um, those are some of the uh, political type conspiracy theories, but several diseases have also been suggested as the causes of Poe's death. And some of the possibilities that folks have thrown out over the years include brain tumors, heart disease, cholera, stroke, and diabetes. And then in 1984, a biohistorian named Arno Carlin came out with the theory that Poe had this rare type of enzyme disorder called alcohol dehydrogenase deficiency syndrome. And he had that perhaps in combination with a brain tumor. So Hopkins says that the syndrome is an interesting theory because it could perhaps explain Poe's lifelong low tolerance of alcohol, as well as some of his mental issues and, of course, his death, too. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's uh, not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hi everyone. It's Katie Couric. I've got a ton of questions about this crazy time we're living in. And I know you probably do too. On the new season of my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, I sit down with people at the center of the issue shaping the world around us, like the impact meat has on our health and on the environment. Why the maternal mortality rate in the United States is so high. And how the 2020 presidential candidates plan to improve the lives of everyday Americans. I hope you'll join me for these fascinating conversations on the second season of Next Question. Subscribe and listen every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. One of the more recent and popular medical malady theories, though, is rabies. According to the University of Maryland Medical Center, Dr. R. Michael Benitez reviewed Poe's case, and in 1996, he proposed that Poe's symptoms in the final days of his life were, in fact, consistent with the progression of rabies. This could be possible, even though there weren't any apparent animal bites on Poe at the time. Poe was known to be an animal lover. He loved cats in particular, and he did keep pets. And 
people can sometimes, uh, according to the source, can have rabies up to a year without showing symptoms, which I actually didn't know before. Another disturbing fact from from the podcast. (laughs) One of the symptoms Benitez was including in his assessment, though, was hydrophobia, a fear of water that Poe supposedly exhibited when he had trouble drinking in the hospital. However, that account of Poe not drinking came from one of our friend Dr. Moran's many accounts of the situation, and he contradicted it in another later account. So some discount this rabies theory because of that, too. It does make a good headline, though. You've got to give it that. But finally, a lot of people think Poe died as the result of some kind of conspiracy. And of course, it already sounds like we've discussed these conspiracy theories because there's a touch of conspiracy mixed in with some of the earlier theories, like the alcohol line conspiracy by temperance movement folks to get their agenda across and the cooping, you know, the possible conspiracy involving Poe's cousin, who was running for office. But some think Poe's romantic entanglements might have led to a plot against him as well. And for instance, Elmira Royster Shelton's brothers might not have been too happy about that impending marriage to their sister. And some authors have tossed that out there as a possibility. Hopkins actually points to an account of Joseph Sartrain's as potential evidence that something like this was, in fact, going on. Joseph Sartrain had worked with Poe at Graham's Magazine, and after Poe's death, he had come out with kind of a shocking account of his last encounter with Poe. According to Sartrain's account, he saw Poe in Philadelphia in 1849, and Poe was afraid for his life at this time, asking for Sartrain's protection and saying that he had overheard some men on the train plotting to kill him. When Sartrain asked, why would someone want to kill you? Poe said, quote, it was for revenge for, quote, a woman trouble. Hmm. So So another intriguing possibility. But many people, though, believe that the most likely conspirator against Poe was Rufus W. Griswold. And Griswold had aspired to be a fiction writer, but didn't really have the talent, ended up becoming an editor instead. And he and Poe brushed paths professionally on many occasions, and the two men just didn't really like each other. And Hopkins suggests that Griswold may have been perhaps jealous of Poe's talent, though Griswold apparently claimed upon Poe's death that Poe had made a promise that he wanted Griswold to be his literary executor. But according to Hopkins, no legal proof of this agreement exists. Still, though, Griswold did become Poe's executor and his first biographer, and later likely got the opportunity to print some inaccuracies about Poe and profit at the same time. Yeah, he also printed uh, this note after Poe's death uh, in a New York paper, and it was kind of scathing about Poe. It just wasn't very flattering at all. So he got a couple of opportunities after Poe's death to kind of get in A couple hits in there, yeah. yeah. So there are a number of theories and sub-theories out there, as you can see, about why and how Poe really died. But unfortunately, no one knows for sure what the real story is. And as you can tell by what we've recounted so far, there are just too many personalities and possible hidden agendas involved to really get to the heart of what happened. It's just a bunch of possibilities that we can sort of mull mull over for a while and debate about, but we can't really get a definitive answer. But in the end, despite his fame, Poe was buried hurriedly in Westminster Presbyterian Churchyard in Baltimore with only a handful of people present. 
In 2009, though, which was about 160 years after his death, Baltimore's Poe House and Museum threw Poe another larger funeral, too, in fact, I think, that had something like 700 people in attendance. So, so yeah, people do continue, of course, to celebrate the author, to look into his life and his death. I mean, I have to say one of my favorite Poe things is The Simpsons, Treehouse of Horrors. <laughs> it's a classic. But, um, you know, on, on whatever level, whether it's a cartoon like that or whether it's a, a serious study of his work, people still clearly appreciate his writing today and it still resonates with people. So true. And I mean, when it comes to this mystery, it's fun to talk about and to explore all these possibilities. But I have to wonder, do we really want to know the answer? I mean, isn't it sort of fitting in a way that Poe's own story has this element of mystery to it? It's Poe-like. It is very Poe-like. And with that, I think that we are going to close out this episode about Poe, but it's been really fun to talk about him. If you have any favorite Poe stories or poems that we didn't mention. that Or you, theories. Or theories, yes. I mean, we talked about a few of them here, but we know that there are many that we didn't touch on and many aspects, even of the ones that we did touch on, that we didn't, uh, didn't really have time to include in this. Flesh out completely. Yes, in this fairly succinct, but not so succinct podcast. <laughs> podcast. I think we've rambled on for a little while, but definitely share those with us and uh, let us know if there's anything else about the story you'd like us to look into. You can find us at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook and you can also find us on Twitter at Missing History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about rare books, we do have an article called 10 Rare Books. And um, didn't you say one of his works is included in that article? Tamerlane and Other Poems is number eight on that list. Okay, I so believe. you can go, go read about it. And to do that, go to our homepage and search for 10 Rare Books. It's at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review <laughs> spells help me. <laughs> it seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini platforms. I'm Scott Janovitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a new podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of your favorite movies, music, television, toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.